Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. is Patrick Belazzo. Patrick is a Killam Scholar, a recipient of the Canada Graduate Scholarship to honor Nelson Mandela, and he currently works as a research officer with the Burmese Human Rights Organization based in Thailand. Patrick holds a BA and a Master's in International Development Studies from Dalhousie University. For his Master's research, Patrick explored how recently acquired nationality has been a benefit to Sri Lanka's previously stateless upcountry Tamil population. For his honors thesis, Patrick focused on the responsibility of the international development community in defending the human rights of stateless persons in Myanmar. Previously, Patrick has worked with the Stateless Network Asia Pacific, the Canadian Centre for Statelessness, and the Romeo Dallaire Child Soldiers Initiative. Joining us today from Thailand, Mr. Patrick Belazzo. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Hughes. How are you? Never better, sir. I hear it's warm and steamy in Thailand right now, and it's frigid as can be today in Halifax. We're happy to have you uh, make this time to join us today on GDP. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. And uh, yes, it's, uh, it was about 38 degrees uh, today. So Good. Well, it's starting um, to cool off a bit now that, it's, uh, now that the sun has set. Cooling to a gentle 32. Perfect. All right. About that, yeah. Good. You're, you're in Thailand right now, and you're currently working on issues of statelessness. Uh, and this is, this is an issue between the countries of Thailand and Burma or Myanmar. Could you tell our listeners about the issue at hand uh, that's going on in Southeast Asia and, and what your work's about? Right. So uh, statelessness is, uh, well, first, I think I should briefly define what statelessness is, just so uh, listeners... That would be great understand the profound consequences of being stateless. So simply put, the term stateless person means a person who is not considered as a national by any state according to its law. So in other words, this person, a stateless person is not recognized as a citizen in any country of the world. Now, this is a problem because one needs to have a nationality, one needs to have citizenship because it is through the state that we all are provided access to, you know, political processes like voting, uh, judicial processes, um, you know, defense, legal defense before the law, and uh, for claiming all manner of human rights, be they economic, social, or cultural. So essentially, citizenship, nationality is the right to have rights, because without it, you're not recognized uh, before the law and before the international state system, legally you don't exist. So you have no entitlement to human rights when you are stateless. Okay, so this isn't just an issue in Southeast Asia. Of course, to be stateless, we're seeing this impact other other persons, other groups around the world. Is, uh, is it 
Is it correct to say that someone who's stateless is a refugee, or is that incorrect? Uh, somewhat incorrect. Uh, stateless people can be refugees, but not all refugees are stateless. Right, uh, right. So, And not all stateless people right. are refugees. Okay. Yes. So a uh, refugee can be stateless, um, but more often than not, they they do hold a birth certificate from their country of origin. Um, whereas a stateless person has no legal documentation uh, pertaining to their ID whatsoever. Okay, good. That's a really uh, important so, distinction. So yeah. Yeah. So, so you're correct. Uh, statelessness is a global, a global problem, but the majority, currently the majority of stateless people are found within uh, Southeast Asia. Okay. <clears throat> and particularly Thailand and Burma. What's, what's going on there? Right, so the perhaps the most relatable uh, example is the the Thai cave boys, which grabbed international headlines in I think the the summer of twenty eighteen. Yep. That was about uh, July twenty eighteen. That's right. Right, so in north uh, northern Thailand, in the Chiang Rai province, uh, a soccer team ventured into a cave as they normally do apparently as many children in the area do in their uh, in their downtime um, and got trapped uh, the so it was the, the soccer team in the Tam Luang cave and uh, as news developed it was learned that the the boys and their coach who were trapped in the cave were in fact stateless so they had they are born and living in northern Thailand um, but had never had their births registered, uh, and that could be for a variety of reasons. So all along the, the Thai, particularly the Thai, Myanmar, Thai, Burma border, uh, statelessness is a major problem. A lot of it has to do with the difficulties in negotiating um, administrative systems, both in Thailand and Myanmar. It's expensive for rural communities. It can be uh, it can be uh, intimidating is the word I'm looking for. It can be yeah, intimidating, yeah. For, particularly for ethnic minority groups to, uh, you know, to travel to an administrative town and deal with authorities when there's a language barrier, when there are lingering issues of ethnic discrimination, xenophobia. Uh, so, and also, um, particularly in Burma, much administrative procedures are many administrative procedures are still paper-based so it's quite a byzantine uh, labyrinthine process to uh, right. register a child's birth to register your own identity before the law um, but i do want to stress that it's not a coincidence that most stateless people in southeast asia and across the world belong to ethnic minority groups uh, and more often than not, discrimination plays a major role uh, in why specific populations are stateless. Okay, very interesting. What uh, so within Burma right now? Uh, you know, we've heard uh, a UN uh, Commission report. There's been an investigation to say that there's uh, there's active genocide in Burma in 2018, 2017. Uh, is this what you're looking at? The the consequences of of that experience? 
Uh, right now, no. The the organization that I'm working for, we're focused on uh, a different part of of Burma. Um, mm-hmm. Human rights abuses, uh, human rights violations are a major problem throughout Burma. Uh, okay. This isn't to say what's happened to the Rohingya is any less important than what's happening elsewhere. Uh, but uh, currently, in my role currently, and the organization I'm working with, we're, we focus our attention on a, uh, a different area of, of Myanmar, of Burma. Okay, we'll we'll get back to the uh, to the Rohingya uh, issue in a bit, but that's also uh, an important fact to recognize that we've got you know on top of statelessness issues in Southeast Asia, there are human rights abuses uh, being committed daily that that warrant investigation. Now you've also done work in Sri Lanka. Can you tell us about what some of your research has been there? Right. So uh, a bit of background. In 2014, the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, launched the Decade to End Statelessness by 2024. Uh, So that inspired me to undertake research uh, because a lot of literature that was being published uh, both, you know, in media and academically with respect to two previously stateless populations was declaring it an absolute victory, uh, celebrating the acquisition of citizenship for a community in Bangladesh and another community in Sri Lanka. But no one was really taking the time to assess whether this actually changed anything uh, in terms of the day-to-day reality of these people, of these populations. So. I conducted my uh, field work in Sri Lanka to to get a better sense of whether uh, Sri Lanka's formerly stateless upcountry Tamil minority now had better access or entitlement to fundamental human rights. So I'm talking about right. education, healthcare, political <clears throat> participation, basic, basic stuff, uh, given that they are now citizens and ought to have access to such rights. So, again, Sri Lanka is another territory, another country that is not immune to violence, notably uh, politically charged ethnic violence. So this condition of statelessness, are we seeing that the Tamil population was not given the rights to be part of the state or was that stripped from them or was this a consequence of the, the conflict that was going on in that country? So first, I need to make a distinction. The, there was a 30-year civil war between the Sinhala majority in Sri Lanka and the Tamil minority who live in the north and east of Sri Lanka. So they are the Tamils. I, the, the previously stateless population I focused on are the upcountry Tamils, which right. are a even smaller minority. Um, the, the Tamils in the north and the east are are indigenous to the island, whereas the upcountry Tamil population were brought over during the colonial period by the British uh, to work as slave labor on British tea plantations. Okay, so the, and these are this population is considered to be the upcountry Tamils. So they they've come from somewhere else. They were there just to work under British authority. Right. And so their descendants so remain. The, right. So colonial authorities uh, started to relocate 
the upcountry Tamil population from southern India beginning beginning in the early 19th century, so the 1820s. Uh, but there is, of course, evidence to show that there were already people from South India in Sri Lanka at that time, because, you know, nothing is uh, ever concrete in terms of ethnicity and culture. It's all fluid and people are constantly migrating. That's just part of the human experience. Um, but with independence from Britain in 1947, the Sinhala majority, uh, fueled by Sinhala nationalism, saw specifically these tea workers, the upcountry Tamil population, as, as outsiders who didn't belong in Sri Lanka. Uh, so shortly after independence, laws were passed in quick succession that stripped them of their residency rights, of their Sri Lankan citizenship, um, and they were rendered stateless. And from 1948 until 2003, uh, neither Sri Lanka nor India considered them citizens of either country. Uh, but finally, after decades of activism on the part of uh, the upcountry Tamil population uh, and pressure from the UN and countries in the region, uh, they were given, they were granted, the upcountry Tamil population was granted citizenship en masse. And so, so it was, do they it was overnight? <clears throat> right. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and in that case, we've we've had other guests in the podcast who have shown that's been a real challenge. That when a a population uh, is suddenly granted the full social contract or the, the full rights to citizenship, uh, sometimes the state really struggles in keeping up with providing the services or guaranteeing the rights of this newly included population. Is that something you found in Sri Lanka? Yes, so my, the research I conducted, uh, my major findings were that women in particular uh, really did not have access to education, to healthcare, to political participation, to participating in the political process uh, on par with the majority population and rural communities. So um, communities of upcountry Tamil, people that lived, let's say, more than 45 minutes away from a major urban hub where there's, you know, a bus station that can take you to other places in the country. Uh, right. Communities that during the, the rainy season, you can't really get in and you can't really leave. Uh, those communities, which comprise the majority of the population, also saw very little to no improvement in terms of access to, to fundamental human rights that you know, people like you and me don't think twice about. Right. So there, there it is on paper. Uh, it is a, uh, you know, cert certification that you are now part of the nation of Sri Lanka. But past that, the, the quality of life, you just want to see in the transition. Uh, what did the UN, did the UN weigh in on that in any way? I mean, you said they're, they're on this campaign to, to create a world free of statelessness. And on paper, I suppose Sri Lanka did its job. But was there any commentary from UN officials or other international bodies on the case of Sri Lanka? Unfortunately, no. Um, the I, I will say that in in by 2007, so four years after citizenship had been granted, it was found that a few, I think, approximately 10,000 or so 
uh, upcountry Tamil people were still without citizenship. So the UN returned and helped organize another citizenship campaign to ensure that everyone was granted citizenship. Um, but beyond that, the, the Sri Lankan example and another very similar case in Bangladesh has largely been celebrated uh, without any critique um, right. by the UN and by other major international organizations. It's really only been from academia and from upcountry Tamil activists right. uh, that any criticism has emerged or, you know, just calls to say that things aren't great. We're not ready to celebrate because very little has changed for many of us. Right. So it sounds like the work isn't done. Like if, if there's an area within international development studies that could use more research, more discussion, more advocacy, uh, this sounds like it's an area that uh, that needs it. I mean, you know, to do a pen stroke uh, on a form or a or, or, you know, some sort of formal edict to include a population, uh, you, you correctly point out like the the job doesn't stop there. And so it seems like there's a need to make sure that people are included in the social contract. Absolutely. And it has a lot of very serious implications for development. Um, for instance, even though someone now has citizenship, they may still be unable to secure formal employment, which pushes people into the black market, which pushes people into uh Dirty, it was a triple D, dirty, dangerous, and I forget the third, jobs. Um, yep. It pushes people into human trafficking networks because they have no options at home. Degrading. Degrading is the third somewhere. D, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, beyond that, you know, if you can't receive medical care, that has all manner of implications for entire populations. It's a public health issue more than anything. Um, as well, if you can't register a birth, even though you've been declared a citizen, you still can't access those administrative procedures. At a certain point, a government won't truly understand the population they're there to serve if they don't have the numbers of people that they're you know, watching over. So it's, it's hard for the state to plan accordingly, to, to initiate development plans, five-year development plans, 10-year development plans, if they don't know the numbers of the population. So there, there are many different avenues that uh, lead to major developmental problems. Fascinating. Uh, I think that sums it up very, very nicely. And I just want to also return to what we talked about earlier about the genocide in Myanmar. I mean, yes. uh, you know, you've, you know, you're currently working on other human rights issues in in Burma. But this, this genocide that took place, I mean, we saw, you know, where, just to clarify, the Rohingya population in Myanmar, were they declared stateless? Yeah. So, uh, again, I want to say that even though I'm not currently working on issues uh, regarding the Rohingya, it's all connected in Myanmar. You know, affronts against the Rohingya or other ethnic groups, the, the military is using the same tactics. Uh, regardless of where they are in the country. So okay. So it does inform, what's happening to the Rohingya does inform what's happening to populations I'm currently uh, working with. Um, so, so yes, well, uh, to answer your question, sorry, the, uh, no, the Rohingya were rendered, were rendered officially stateless with a very discriminatory citizenship act that was passed in 1982. 
and that is in that's in Burma, and what if many Rohingya went to Bangladesh? Are what's their status when they arrived in Bangladesh? Uh, they some many are registered with the UNHCR as refugees, so they are officially recognized by the international community as refugees. However, many aren't. Hundreds of thousands are not, do not have that. So the one benefit of being a registered refugee, if anything, is that it is some semblance of legal identity. Right. Uh, but that's, right. that's really no consolation and that's nothing to celebrate. But uh, No, it's, it's, it's almost a holding pattern more than anything else until yes. something changes or something breaks. I mean, people have have lived uh, the majority of their lives in refugee camps uh, in parts of in parts of Africa, and and there are now identified refugees even in the Americas. Uh, yeah, it, absolutely correct there. Now, one of the one of the points that you made was that when a population is stateless, there's more reliance on informal economies and things going into a black market or sort of the the shadows of society. And I want to touch on that just briefly because one of the things that we saw in the Rohingya genocide, and you and I wrote a a piece about this in early 2018 that uh, identified social media as being an accelerant of this sort of hatred. Uh, When a population is recognized, when it's formalized, there are mechanisms of political representation and in some cases even protection. But for a very vulnerable population, when it comes to stirring up hatred and misinformation, uh, this is a historically consistent theme for stateless populations. And we saw Facebook have a big role in Minuar. Can you take us through that? Yeah, Facebook had a massive role in uh, fomenting hate against the Rohingya, uh, normalizing hate against the Rohingya. Um, So... It's important to understand first that until 2012, uh, the the Myanmar military had an absolute control over information. And overnight, with the sudden shift uh, to a nominally civilian democratic government, uh, Myanmar opened up a long-standing 50-year pre-publication ban on all media was lifted. And nearly overnight, Millions of people were able to buy very affordable Chinese smartphones, um, all of which came preloaded with Facebook. And right. to such an extent that Facebook is essentially the Internet for many Burmese people. Right. So this is a technology that was literally brand new. I mean, I, I think we've talked about this elsewhere, that before this transition of this overcoming this publication ban, what was actually the cost of accessing the internet in Burma before this change? So until 2012, uh, a SIM card, for one, you would have to be uh, the military, you'd have to get approval or permission from the military to go ahead and buy a SIM card. And once you received that permission, it would run you about 1300 US to, to purchase a SIM card. Right, and, and this is a country that we're still a couple bucks a day wages in many many parts. Yeah, this is Myanmar still is considered a least developed country, so you know right. that's 
years uh, for some a lifetime of wages. So uh, technically it was possible, but realistically very few other than the elite could could have access to the internet. Okay. So, so yeah, and then so, afterwards so the cost came down to almost nothing? Oh, uh, I think $1, $2. I was there recently and bought a SIM card for a week for with unlimited uh, Wi-Fi. Sorry, unlimited data for uh, I think ten dollars, a, a tourist package. Right. right. Um, but yeah, for 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 locals, it's one two dollars. So it went from almost strictly prohibited to absolutely open pipe, and you know a lot of our listeners here are, uh, you know, are either watching or listening to this podcast through you know, one of several platforms. Uh, there's that sort of long-term education uh, in the West about various forms of media and accessibility and what the internet is. But what, what you're making it sound here is like this phone comes available, or these, these phones come available to people in, in Myanmar and the whole world is Facebook. And we see and we have seen Facebook in a lot of hot water for misrepresenting information in elections in the Russia, elections in the United States, and, you know, even down to anti, anti-vaxxing campaigns, uh, you know, the, the, this media has had a real powerful impact on spreading misinformation. So how did it get going in, in Minuar? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So it's, it, it's a situation where there was very little media literacy because there was no exposure to media. And then overnight, everyone was on Facebook and Facebook was used by, uh, by, it's now been documented that the Myanmar military and a very influential uh, monastic order, Mabata, uh, organized and run by a group of ultra-nationalist um, Buddhist monks, uh, took to Facebook, uh, either through their own personal channels who identified uh, wherein they identified themselves and through hundreds of fake accounts uh, took to Facebook and spread, you know, explicitly racist political cartoons, uh, repurposed images to show that the Rohingya had been killing innocent Buddhists, um, falsified images, they staged news reports, which uh, many have been debunked. Um, but all of this content went viral immediately. And right. there were hundreds, thousands of posts every day uh, in the months around uh, August 2017 when, when the genocide started. Um, now, a lot of this, this went on for months, and Facebook did very little to combat it. And once they finally did, uh, two things happened. Because of a lack of understanding of the local context, a lot of human rights organizations, human rights defenders, Rohingya activists, they were banned from Facebook and not the hate content. Hmm. Fascinating. So, you know, without the, the Internet literacy skills to, to fact check, uh, to, you know, get around the, you know, the fake, the intentionally fake uh, stories being broadcast, people took it face value. You know, and this, again, I think speaks to how media has had a role in provoking other genocides in the past. I mean, it's been credited to radio. It's been credited to uh, what went on in, uh, you know, in Kosovo and, and, uh, 
and and we had the same idea in Rwanda and Burundi with the genocides there. But the speed of this is truly alarming. I mean, you know, he said August of 2017. I mean, uh, th- this sort of came out of nowhere with a few posts, and by by the end of the by the end of the year, you know, there's a full UN commission, and uh, you know, Burma's being scrutinized by the world for saying, "What the hell is going on here?" Yeah, that's. I would say the the role that Facebook had in stoking violence and stoking hatred is the most troubling aspect of how this was organized uh, because Facebook enabled the military and hardline monks to to win the hearts and minds of you know regular everyday people like you and me who were right. inundated who were awash in all manner of fake of falsified information demonizing the Rohingya who are one of the most impoverished ethnic minorities in the country who you know don't have the means really to to wage war against right. the Buddhist majority or the ethnic majority. Um, it's it's beyond alarming how how successful Facebook proved to be to to stoke that kind of hatred. Unbelievable. Um, Mr. Balazzo, we might just have to leave it there. Uh, our listeners have joined us for almost uh, 30 minutes here, and it's been a fantastic conversation. But the the issues about statelessness, the the issues of third-party actors, Facebook, and the complexity that identity plays in the development process has been uh, very much highlighted by I think the work that you're doing here, and it's something that our you know our, there's a lot of room in international development to look at these issues further. If any of our listeners have you know questions about where they should look for more information or to pursue research on their own, do you have any starting points, any advice for where they can get more engaged with these subjects? Absolutely. So uh, in the Canadian context, there's a small outfit, the Canadian Center on Statelessness. So if you Google that, uh, it'll come up right away. There's the European Network on Statelessness, ENS. Uh, that's not hard to find. There's the Statelessness Network, Asia Pacific, SNAP, and uh, a new, a relatively new uh, think tank based out of the Netherlands called the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, ISI. And uh, ISI is a fantastic resource. They're, they're connected with all the other organizations I've mentioned, and it's a great starting point to start to to wrap your head around these issues. Fantastic. Mr. Blazo, all the best to you on your work on the, uh, up, in, up in Thailand. Uh, wish you all the best, and thank you again for joining us on GDP, the Global Development Primer podcast. Thank you very much. It was, it was my pleasure to be here, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. I think we will. Take care.